With a robust economy and low inflation, markets and economics are in a complicated era. WealthVest presents the Weekly Bull and Bear, a podcast dedicated to bringing financial professionals the most up-to-date weekly analysis of the trends and developments occurring in capital markets both here and around the world. Listen in as we analyze these developments and shine a light on the events that matter to us. Thanks for everybody who's listening to this call and the recording. Uh, we will be talking about, I'll, I'll, I'll lay out some of our talking points for today in the front, but we'll be doing a market update. We'll be talking about some of Powell's comments last week, along with rate cuts around the world. Uh, we're going to do a little discussion on technology as a cause of the flattening yield curve. We'll have some topics, topics pertaining to China. And then lastly, we'll just kind of have a political update. But uh, let's get us started on the market today. Um, it's been fairly muted. Uh, we're looking at uh, bonds is about 1.69 right now. But, um, you know, from we had a pretty up week in the market last now. It looks like stocks are sliding slightly on tech shares as they're resuming their decline. But, uh, Tim, yeah, what's, what's your thoughts on what's going on? I tell you, the equity market stays strong. Um, it, you know, you look at the economic data, and it couldn't be more clear that we continue to slow. Uh, you could look at cash freight. You can look at just the trend in non-farm payrolls. Uh, you know, at, at this point, uh, private non-farm payroll growth is the slowest since the recovery then since two, uh, started in 2009. You know, the New York Fed is now looking for 1-1 on Q4 GDP. You know, it's not the Atlanta Fed. The Atlanta Fed's always wrong. The New York Fed does a little better job. But all of these guys now, and we've been talking about it, we've got maybe max 2% on potential GDP, and we're going to run south of that for a little while. Uh, but what the market, what the equity market is telling you is one of two things are going to happen or both. The Fed is going to be there. Uh, we're right now um, uh, the Fed funds futures are discounting 25 basis points in uh, late later on in, in September here. Seems like you could get 50 basis points if you see some weakening, uh, uh, if you get weaker data between now and then. But I think the market is the Fed fund futures are only pointing to about a 20% or less chance of that. So in all likelihood, we'll get 25 bips this time. Powell will remain. People say he sounds hawkish. He's not hawkish in the least bit. Um, he'll remain accommodative as he can be. Uh, so look, that's what that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the market continuing to believe that all the central bank activity around the world is going to have an impact. There are plenty of charts that you'll see that are kind of lead indicator type charts, and those lead indicator type charts that are basing it on central bank activity globally, all are pointing to a recovery. We're in a different world, though, now when money is so cheap and there is a real separation to where Fed funds are, to where banks are borrowing money and where consumers are borrowing money, especially here in the United States. You know my view. I'm of the view that the Fed and central banks globally don't have the kind of ability uh, to revive the economy. And the other one is just on the on the trade front. You know, China has been actually trying to to jawbone it a little bit by saying, look, this is going to end better, but it's going to end better because Trump is going to lose his will. And I think that was a, a real meaningful part of the strength that we had in the market last week. Uh, but again, I think it's basically a fool's errand to try to predict what the president is going to do. 
But the trend uh, is that he is very much sticking to his guns on the value of tariffs, on keeping tariffs in place. And there, I don't see I don't see a whole lot of reason to believe that he's going to capitulate. And I see absolutely zero reason to believe that the Chinese are going to capitulate. You just keep keep looking at where the dollar yuan peg is going, uh, and it keeps going higher. Uh, and they have more reserves now because they've allowed uh, that currency to slide a little bit. So the Chinese are doing what they need to do. The data is terrible out of China. The data is terrible. I mean, you saw a Japanese machine tool order today, which is just another debacle. If you look at the tertiary data around China, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, it's all weak. So, so that the market is really depending on these trends changing. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing I'll bring up, and I know uh, non-farm payrolls is hardly your favorite metric, but some of the analysis was pretty interesting because – you know, the other month you had $25,000 or 25,000 temp workers um, who are in preparation for the 2020 yeah. census. So in terms of actual, you know, real sectors, whether we're talking about retail or uh, anything else, that might even kind of buttress those numbers a little bit. Um, of course, sure. I, was, I, I was slightly surprised to see uh, uh, average hourly earnings have kind of remained strong. They increased 0.4%. Um, last month and that's i think 3.2 percent over the year but yeah you got to look at you got to look at that average hourly earnings on top of hours worked and you also when we look at the private non-farm payrolls you got to look at the birth death model as well there are bearish economists out there who, who will cherry pick the negatives all the time but there's a lot of negatives to cherry pick out of that non-farm payroll and if you take out the birth death model if you take out the census hiring you only look on the private side you're doing less than 50,000. And the trend, the three, look, the non-farm payroll is not a great series, but the trend is going to be is going to be illustrative or representative of what's going on and uh, it's weakening and it continues to weaken. Um, and it just and, and look, it's it's a lagging indicator. Uh, the the fact is is that real-time indicators like cash freight, like trucking employment, that's getting weaker. Uh, and I think that really is what matters, not each individual print on the NFPs. Yeah. Um, I, we, we touched base on this a little bit, but, uh, I mean, right now it seems we're in, I guess, quite frankly, what they call the pre-meeting quiet period. Um, yeah. You know, Powell had some statements he made in Zurich on Friday uh, indicating likelihood of cuts for um, interest rates in this coming meeting. Uh, we kind of touched on that. It seems like we think we think that's probably what he'll be announcing um, after the next meeting on September 17th, 18th. Uh, but some yeah. of the numbers, though, I've seen, you know, in terms of the Bank of International Settlement numbers, I mean, they've showed 32 global cuts uh, this year, yeah. which is just pretty wild. Yeah. And that's that's tracking 38 different central banks. So it seems like, you know, you're seeing a global uh, tit for tat that could mean an additional cumulative rate reductions of uh, 16% or so, according to these Bloomberg numbers. Yeah. Yeah. The cynical among us might just call that just one big, ugly, global competitive devaluation. I mean, look, it's a race to zero. Uh, who was it that came out this week? Was it Greenspan who said, yeah, we'll probably, or, or I think it was Greenspan who said, yeah, we'll probably get to zero. 
rest of the world's at zero. Um, we're the reserve currency of the world. The 10-year is the risk-free asset in the world. Why should U.S. interest rates be higher than they are anywhere else? So, um, you know, look, whether the Fed does 25 bips or 50, as I said, Fed fund futures going to have it right. If it, if it gets out of line, the jawbone will, they, they would have jawboned it to get it right. Uh, but either way, you're getting there. We're going lower. We're going to sub one over time on, on, on Fed funds. Yeah, I did think it was kind of funny, you know, when Greenspan just said, you know, what's the barrier? I mean, the word, the yeah. number zero has no meaning. There is no certain level. Um, yeah. So, you know, he just went out. Yeah. And and let's let's talk. So, I mean, we we're talking about, of course, the Fed, but then there's been a lot of interesting analysis on where technology might might fit in this flattening yield curve. Um, I mean, so right now you have what they're saying is five innovation platforms going on at the same time, whether that's DNA sequencing, robotics, energy storage, you know, you got artificial intelligence, and then lastly, uh, blockchain technology. So not since like the late 1800s have we seen all these platforms, you know, rolling at the same time. And is that maybe a reason why uh, we're seeing, you know, systematically falling prices. I mean, how much of this is actually technology and not um, not a lot of the other factors you see on, you know, whether it's Bloomberg or CNBC or uh, st- stuff, that, stuff that we've been talking about? You know, look, productivity growth isn't that strong. I, I, I hear you. You know, there's all this technology. Blockchain hasn't added up to a whole lot so far, right? Um, but all of these things are going to drive better efficiencies, but you're just not really seeing meaningful improvements in technology. The reason why rates are globally on their way to zero is because there's so little growth. Um, And it's as simple as that. I mean, you know, you saw German manufacturing number really weak, German exports really weak. We talked a little bit about the Chinese data in the and the real data, which is kind of imports and exports in China, since you can't necessarily trust those numbers. Um, I think it's really about slowing much more than it's about technology. Productivity is generally much more cyclical. You get productivity growth coming out of recessions. You very rarely get meaningful productivity uh, late in an economic cycle. And uh, it, it, it would just be hard to make the argument at this point uh, that this is all productivity-driven, and that's what's c- cutting inflation. What's cutting inflation is a lack of growth. It's just, I think, very, very hard to predict long-term what any technological innovation is going to have on uh, on prices, on inflation. You know, you mentioned the late 1800s. The classic economist example is the cotton gin. The thinking of the cotton gin would be, well, you're not going to need any workers because you have all of this productivity of the cotton gin. Well, the cotton gin ended up generating more volume, so now you needed more workers. Now you've got more plantings. Now you've got more throughput. And while it ended up generating some productivity, uh, it ended up creating more demand for work, and that creates inflation. So it, it just there's a myriad ways it can go. And economists don't have any ability to guess which one of those myriad possibilities are going to be deflationary or inflationary. So I, I would just I would tell you to keep it simple. 
the lack of the lack of interest rate growth is about economic growth not being there and economic growth really being a derivative of demographics and the fact is, is we're getting old in this in the US we're getting older than in, in, in the US in Europe and in, and in Japan they're getting older than in the US or Europe it's a really mature global economy that just isn't going to generate a lot of inflation until until you have debt crises until you start to see real cost of capital having to go up from a risk point of view Yeah, that that seems like a good synopsis. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I always find technology interesting. I mean, you got guys like uh, Andrew Yang. We'll talk about politics a little bit later, but you know, he's pretty much uh, John Connor, right, <laughs> in a real life um, Terminator type. And you know, as as we see guys talk about technology, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the Cotton Gin's a good example. But you got to remember that a lot of this stuff that we've talked about in terms of automation. And some of that we, we've talked about ATMs is it just hasn't come to pass in a lot of these uh, pertinent development examples. So, I mean, something I'm always interested in looking at, but, um, you know, whether whether we're in the midst of a revolution or whether, you know, there's other factors, you know, we're talking about sowing growth is it'll be curious to see. Um, you have so many things that can drive inflation in the future. What happens if we start pricing carbon? That's going to be highly inflationary. What if we start generating more energy from solar and wind? And you mentioned energy energy storage. Those are far, far more labor-intensive industries and more expensive industries than coal, mat gas, etc. So you just don't know what forces are going to dominate in, in terms of driving inflation. Look at the political environment globally where you have so much anti-immigration. You'll have tighter labor markets. What does that do to inflation? So I, I just think it's really impossible for economists to predict that far out. We're not very good at understanding what's going to happen next year. I was just reading a stat earlier. In June of 2008, right, so just before the world absolutely blew up, Fed fund futures were predicting 50 bips of tightening. Mm -hmm. A group of economists can't see what's going to happen six months from now. The idea that we can understand what the pressures are going to be on inflation five years from now, I think is silly. Yeah, I mean, and then that led to a lot of books, of course, you know, whether that Bernanke or Paulson. And um, I think that's kind of a widely discussed fact, you know, uh, yeah. how, how far off, how far off the world could have been. We touched base a little bit on China. Um, I guess we should mention, you know, they're going to meet again in early October. Um, I mean, there's kind of a reoccurring pattern. I think this is maybe the 13th meeting uh, from what I saw, although, you know, I'm not, not entirely sure, but it's somewhere up there where we've kind of gone back to the table. Um, I mean, last week we saw stocks rise around the world um, that talks would resume, but uh, it seems like this has kind of been, you know, a perpetual cycle of tit for tat. You know, things move a little bit, and then and then and then they don't. So, uh, do we think you're, we're seeing anything different here um, this October than we have throughout the entire summer, or um, you know, are, are we still remain very much at a standstill? I mean, you know, you remember when George Bush botched the quote, uh, "Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me." 
I mean, as you just right. said, this would be fool, this would be fool me for the thirteenth time. Shame on me. We yeah. have made absolutely zero zero progress, uh, and the Chinese have shown no willingness to make concessions. The president continues to think that he can bully the Chinese, uh, which I think is is a really poor strategy. Uh, I, I think that should the world be taking on China for IP and all that? Of course we should. Is it, would it be more effective to do it in a multilateral way? I think so. So I don't have any reason to believe uh, that it would get that will get meaningfully better. And look, I'm guessing the behavior of somebody who is incredibly unpredictable. But I just don't see what I don't see Trump capitulating uh, on China and even China allowing him to capitulate. China doesn't want to deal with a with a Trump second term. We say it every week. They're playing the long game here. And I think they go absolutely nowhere. And I think we'll have more tariffs as we approach November 2020 in the election. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only things we can really show on the ground that are kind of pushing the Chinese in any way is, I mean, exports are quite a bit weaker. I mean, their August exports in the U.S. fell 16% year on year. Uh, and then, of course, what we haven't talked too much about, but what's kind of emerging as a major issue is um, – What's going on in Hong Kong, right? So uh, Fitch just, yeah. you know, cut, you know, had a ratings cut um, to AA from what was AA plus. Uh, they're talking about the parameters of a one country, two systems is under threat, uh, which we, you know, we're even starting to see a little bit about that in Macau, you know, all these SAR zones, or they call them. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess those are two things the Chinese really have to, uh, you know, get a control of if they want to maintain um, you know, an upper hand, but yeah, I, I think it's an interesting question though, is there seems to be a belief of, of the market, the equity market buoyancy, I think it's partly driven boy by the thought that boy, if we can get past these trade wars, we'll be off to the races again. China will go back to being, you know, one third of global economic growth that has contributed for the last 10 years. But the fact is, is that China's the exports, uh, let's see what it is. It's, it's I think, 3 to 4% of total industrial production in China goes to exports to the United States. That alone is not what's crippling China. China car sales were down 10% last month, and the comps are easy. So you're comping negative sales, and now you're getting into down 15 20% two-year stacks. Uh, unemployment is rising in China. Internal demand is falling in China. By the way, exports aren't, while the exports are weakest to the United States, they're weak globally. So this is not just the U.S. trade war, which is hurting China. And I think that at some point, there's going to be a realization that, no, there's no magic bullet here. There's no, we kiss and make up and we all go back to, to, to better trends. I, I, I don't, I, 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 while I think the trade wars are a negative, I don't think they explain why China is slowing, people have to realize China has been in a, in, in a in an up cycle now for, I don't know, 40 years, 50 years, depending on wherever you want to start it from. Um, they keep cutting reserves on banks. You keep seeing weaker credit at banks. You got dozens of big banks in China with debt trading north of 10%, some of the trading at 15%. 
that's not because of U.S. trade wars. That's because they've been in a growth expansion where they've been covering up bad credit for a really, really long time. Eventually, that shit bites you in the ass. Yeah, and the other, I mean, I guess one of the other things is uh, I saw, you know, when Aramco, when they were going to IPO, and, you know, I think they ended up in Tokyo, if I'm not mistaken, but, I mean, you have London, and then you have Hong Kong as, you know, two other options on yeah. uh, where they're going to go public, and those both fell through, and I think getting into, you know, there is political risk has really gone up in years, and, and that, that does affect... Yeah business and financial markets if if you know countries can't get a hold on things i mean you see you see major major ramifications like that yeah i i, I you asked me before and I, I i forgot to mention it hong kong's a big deal look property values in hong kong um have doubled more than doubled since 2008 um the valuation of the real estate in hong kong is the most expensive in the world uh, and not only is it most expensive in the world on a square footage basis, but it's most expensive on an affordability basis. So to the degree that China begins to assert itself more aggressively in Hong Kong, which seems to me to be just a matter of time, that is going to be a big, big problem. And it's going to be, while Hong Kong is not known as being super levered, this isn't something that we should be comparing to uh, you know, the U.S. housing crisis where nobody had any equity, you know, there's real equity here. But still, there is when you have this good of a run that you've had for that long in Hong Kong and property prices, uh, a backup is going to cause some damage. And, it, and that damage is going to be felt within China, but globally as well. Yeah. And I guess to kind of close things out, we haven't talked shop on politics a little bit. Um I mean, today, of course, we see a big news drop if anyone's looking at their screens, but uh, John Bolton's been fired. And, uh, you know, some men, some people might miss the man in the mustache, but, uh, you know, oil, oil's dropped uh, almost immediately. So um, that's, I think that shows almost the immediate loosening of tensions uh, that we may have been having with Iran. And then uh, alternatively, uh, Mark Sanford, you know, former South Carolina governor, has thrown his hat in the ring um, and will be challenging Trump to a primary. Whether that really matters or not, I'm not sure, because uh, a lot of uh, GOP states won't be hosting primaries um, this year. But but it does add another element in you know, what's going to be a long and uh, very interesting campaign season. Yeah. Um, you know, Mark Sanford what's the guy, Joe Walsh, uh, Bill Weld was a legit as, as legit can be, but Bill Weld is 20 years past his prime. So the Republican, look, Trump's, Trump's popularity within the Republican party is somewhere north of 80%. He always calls it 94%, but nobody really knows where that number comes from. There was a Gallup poll going back a few months that had him at 90%. So there's no reason to think, and as you stated, many GOP states aren't even going to hold primaries. They don't have to. Hell, these are 529. These are non-governmental organizations. We always forget this. These are totally extra-constitutional, these parties. Uh, so they can do whatever the hell they want, essentially. And they're not going to – I don't think anybody is legitimately going to come up and oppose uh, the president within the GOP. In terms of John Bolton, John Bolton's wanted to bomb Iran since he was in high school. So him <laughs> and, and it was just very, very clear 
that that was what he wanted to do. You can say what you want about Trump. At least he doesn't seem interested in starting any new wars. I'll say that for him, which is a positive. Um, bombing Iran is not a good idea, in my opinion. Uh, but, you know, look, oil is really going to be driven uh, by the fact that we've got an oil glut, that technology has changed the game in oil. Uh, we got so much oil coming out of the Permian uh, that they can't, they don't know how to get it out of there. Uh, you're building pipeline as fast as you can. Uh, so we're in an oil glut. I'm down here in Tennessee. I just paid $2.15 for gas. Um, I don't think that short of, short of you know, bombing Iran, I think that you'll continue to see pressure on oil, especially, remember, oil is priced in dollar. I expect we'll continue to have a strong dollar. So I would expect we'd continue to see pressure on oil. If you look at other commodities, other commodities, it's, it, it is oil that wags the tail. Everything else is just the tail. Look at Dr. Copper, weak as it can be, iron ore, oil, health. Look at cattle, for God's sakes. Commodities are coming under real, real pressure. A lot of that is, is because of the oil glut, because of cheaper oil. That filters down uh, to, to everything from fertilizer to raising cattle to raising your corn and, and everything else. Uh, it's globally deflationary. Demand isn't really there. No, yeah, I mean, copper's been, copper definitely has been an interesting metric to be looking at. Sure. I mean, so I guess, um, I mean, I suppose the only other thing really on a political update is, you know, we'll have new debate here coming up on the Democratic side. Uh, And that seems to be, uh, as we say, Uncle Joe still seems to be the leader right now. Um, I know, I know uh, some Wall Street executives have, um, you know, spoken about how how they are nervous about uh, what could be a Elizabeth Warren um, resurgence, mm-hmm. but it seems like it's you know it's been fairly flat, all things considering. I mean, with I mean, you look at real clear like politics average. Uh, you know, Joe's Joe's up there almost thirty percent, and Elizabeth Warren's at eighteen. So I mean, things would have to change for us to really see see anything. I think. Yeah, you know, I've made the call since we started doing these calls that I thought that Biden would walk away with the Democratic primary. Uh, I'd have a better sense if I was his doctor, because that really is all that matters. Is he a young 76 who can continue the grueling battle of running for president? Um, We'll see, because his electability is a hell of a lot stronger than Elizabeth Warren's is. I don't see Elizabeth. I just think that the Democratic Party is focused on electability. And as badly as Biden has done, uh, as bad as the media has been, his polls don't slip. And that tells me that the focus is just on electability. And there's while there is people talk about the Democratic Party moving left and all that, there's a big bulk in the middle that's really focused on electability and would be just happy to have old Uncle Joe in there, I think. So we'll see. It's going to come down to his health. Yeah, I mean, when, when people would talk about seismic shifts, what I really will think it happens is, assuming Joe Biden wins the nomination, and then assuming he loses, then I do think you'll have a full-on leftward lurch. Uh, you know, I think the AOCs and the the squad will take over the party, but. I mean, I don't think that's there yet, right? I, I really think that 2020 is going to be the gigantic litmus test, and uh, and we'll see where 
where that that political party goes um, accordingly. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, and 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 while I do think there's a bit of a lurch left, economic bifurcation is going to it, it causes that. Um, don't forget, you still got to run for office at the local level, at the state level, and in doing so, you got to raise money. And it just there's a natural the political system that we have, the realities of it prevent that many people in that many districts going further and further left. So I am kind of on the team that doesn't believe the Democratic Party is going to make this huge lurch to the left. The most charismatic, and by charismatic, I just mean the people able to get the most headlines, do tend to be on the far left. Probably the same thing could be said for the people on the far right uh, in the Republican Party. But I don't know. I don't really see a wholesale change to the Democratic Party moving towards socialism. And if it does, I think you'd start to see third party people, people like a Justin Amash from from the from the right of the Republican Party to centrist Democrats, purple state, red state Democrats who just can't afford that. Uh, You know, my hope and dream is that someday we get a third party. Yeah, I mean, I, I I guess the only thing was we we'd really have to go to a preferential voting system. Um, I think in order to see it because it would be interesting. I, I do think that having Greens or Libertarians or Reform guys, you know, at the table will, I mean, it it will polish the two, you know, the big two big guys in the room and make them better uh, when there's more competition. Yeah. But but and, and some states are going that way. But yeah, so I. Uh, with that said, uh, it looks like um, do you have any closing remarks on what on what you think we should be looking at, or any any well, metrics that we should be discussing? Yeah, I, look, I, I think employment is even though it's considered a lagging indicator, um, it could be a nail in the coffin in terms of how people look at this economic cycle. Uh, because you, everybody can look at manufacturing numbers, which are just unambiguously terrible. We ran through them before, whether we're talking ISMs or exports or cats freight or trucking jobs, whatever. It's still people will say, yeah, but that's only 12, 15 percent of the economy or a service economy. So everybody is able to kind of keep a certain amount of abundance amid a, 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 a manufacturing recession. Don't forget, we kind of had a very light manufacturing recession in 1516. So with all of that, I think more and more concern will be on the consumer data. We had a big jump in revolving credit, credit card uh, usage. Savings rate is coming down. I do believe the consumer is kind of late stage and you're going to see higher credit card usage as you did in the recent data. So employment becomes the key linchpin here. If employment starts to soften, I think the market will really start to say, okay, we may truly be at the end of this economic cycle. And then obviously next week, Wednesday, as you said, Tuesday, Wednesday is the Fed meeting. Uh, You'll probably get 25 bips and we'll all hang on every piece of commentary coming out of that. Excellent. Sounds good, Tim. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening and subscribing. I guess I'd like to end on a note that um, due to traveling schedules, we will pick this up uh, first week of October, uh, October, tentatively October the 1st. Um, Thanks again. Uh, Thanks, Tim. And uh, everyone have a great uh, next couple weeks. All right, Double D, you're the best. 
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthVest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthVest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthVest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthVest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.